This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks very much for joining me for this episode of the show, which features a conversation with the legendary Ricky Rackman. He of Headbangers Ball, MTV Headbangers Ball. My gosh, even if you didn't watch the show, and I couldn't in Australia because we didn't have pay TV, I knew who he was and the iconography surrounding what it was he was doing with heavy music interviews on MTV back when they made a little bit of sense, even though they didn't make much sense back then, but that's another story. And Ricky does touch on that a little bit throughout the conversation. Now, the catalyst, of course, is a tour. He's coming to Australia. I'll put the tour dates in the description if you are onshore or if you are planning to be in the Antipodes for the shows. I will certainly be at the Brisbane show. I'm looking forward to that one there. Now, elsewhere in the conversation, we touch on the Cat House. That's the club that he ran throughout the 80s and 90s. So many luminaries from the world of hard rock and heavy metal have some great stories from their time within the Cat House there, and he shed some light on some of them. I didn't want to give too many away here, though. Otherwise, what's the point in going to the show? There's a bunch of other topics that we cover as well, such as his friendships and or, or otherwise, probably to the point, with some more famous hard rock and heavy metal superstars and overall I just found him to be a joy to talk to he completely lived up to my expectations as one of those blokes who I'd been looking forward to talking to for some time and then it happened and he's just a bloody good bloke so look looking forward to seeing his show albeit the Brisbane show okay let's cut to it here he is Ricky Rackman Ricky yes how are you I'm doing wonderful how are you I'm great. Finally, uh, well, in my instance, mate, it's lovely to finally talk to you. I've been a long-time admirer, particularly because I'm a journalist. Uh, in, in addition to this, I actually work in uh, proper, I suppose you'd call it, journalism as well. But uh, I've always loved your style, mate. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Yeah. you got a couple of interviews, mate, so I'll get it stuck into I'll get stuck into it this morning, um, our morning. I suppose it's the afternoon over there for you, is it? Yeah, it's like 5 <laughs> o'clock here. <laughs> So good morning. So you're getting your vodka ready and I've got my coffee organized. Oh, there you go. So. <laughs> well, look, you got these four shows in Australia that are coming up. And I know the shows overseas, abroad, I should say, have been very successful. And you've got a, a heck of a story to share. So are you bringing the t- same type of show to Australia? Actually, I'm not. Um, the show I've been doing in Los Angeles is about two and a half hours long. And I'm not going to bring that to Australia because Australia is going to be more cat house intensive, which was my night, my nightclub back in the eighties, because I don't think very many people in Australia watched headbangers ball because you didn't get headbangers ball. So this is more cat house stuff, but I'm still good. Or did you maybe people saw clips or something? It was going to be, it was going to be a question that I had for you because look, when the internet democratized information, if you like, We've gotten to know you since then, but most people wouldn't have seen you in Headbangers Ball in Australia because we only got paid TV in like the late 90s, mid-90s. Right. And I know because I was like right on the for, the frontier of that, just waiting for it to come in. They changed the laws and boom, it came in. But the thing is Headbangers Ball was only – there were only snippets of it shown or you had to have a mate who came over from the United States with a VHS with you on it, and that's how I got to know you. I, it was, I remember there was – Beavis and Butthead on one bit, and then there was you on another bit. And I remember thinking, wow, who's this guy interviewing Alice in Chains? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, Biohazard, yeah. I think. Yeah. There's some episodes of um, 
headbangers ball that I will touch on because I have a feeling even if you never saw the show, you might have heard of these clips or you're going to like seeing him anyway. I mean, some of the legendary shows I'll definitely mention. And I'm still kind of working on it. I mean, the whole idea of doing my show and talking about the cat house in Australia. It's not what I dreamed of because I never dreamed something so cool. Like I'm like so incredibly excited about doing this. And the fun thing is it's going to be different is after I do my after I do my talking spoken word show, then I'm going to help DJ and we're going to try to do a rock and roll dance club like the cat house, which hasn't been done in LA or anywhere since maybe 93, maybe. So that's going to be fun. We'll see if it happens. And if it goes over well, you never know. I might be in Australia doing a cat house all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I I listened to your chat with Chris Jericho. So I I, I highly recommend anybody that is interested in your travails and trials and tribulations with the place to have a listen to that chat because as Chris does, he tends to get a lot out of people. But the question that I don't think was broached, have you been approached in the same way that the CBGB's thing, CBGB's thing, you know, at LA airport, they've got a a restaurant there. Have you been asked to do something like that with the cat house? Because it is a prominent brand. I think the reason I haven't is because for so long, I don't want to do it. I mean, CBG's GB shirts, you can find at major department stores mm. and stuff like that. Cat house shirts. I'm the only one that sells them. I, I own all the licensing and everything. Would I do it? I would do it if it was done the right way. And if they think that somebody's just going to give me a check and take the name, I'll never do that because these, I mean, look at it. It's 2023. And people are still talking about this club that I had open in the 80s. So I think because it was not overexposed, it still got this, you know, notorious vibe to it. And maybe because of the infamous reputation of the cat house, that might be why nobody wants to license it, because it was a pretty decadent place. (laughs) I wish I'd be. I wish I was nowhere near old enough back in those days, even if I was in the United States to go to it. But. I mean, you're one of those blokes, you're a bit like Gary Holt in Exodus and Slayer and that you know where all of the bodies are buried. And in your case, it's around the Sunset Sunset Strip. Okay, so you saw a ton of people come in, crash and burn. You saw, you know, you got that excellent David Bowie story with Axl Rose that you shared with uh, Chris as well. But I'll go into detail about that in my show. Yeah, well, people, I'm not going to share it here. I want people to hear that from you directly. Yeah, because it's... I mean, David, you would never have thought David Bowie would uh, put himself in a position like that because he used to live here in Australia, right, too, and a lot of people right. knew him. And uh, he always came across as this very sharp, elegant, uh, restrained. Let, let me just paint the picture restrained, and it's, you know, it is what it I is. Was, but <laughs> I was a little bit disappointed that day because David Bowie, but afterwards he got, I mean, he was going through a hard time when he was doing that band tin machine and this was yeah. right when it was there but you know at the cat house there's you know because this is just the way i was kind of growing up i mean this is the first you know okay paying job i had and it didn't pay good at first and all of a sudden i'm looking i'm like oh there's ozzy there's robert plant there's like aerosmith and and all of my friends of course all of my friends at the time we're all starting bands like Guns N' Roses and Faster Pussycat. And and so I was friends with all these people way before they had record deals. So everybody was getting famous except me. And so I opened up the cat house and was like, oh, we've all got our bands, but Ricky's got the club. Because in our inner circle, like everybody was doing something except yeah. me. 
Well, you started something that's uh, that, that that well. I mean, I know you've talked about potentially a book coming out at some point in time, but it's given you this opportunity to tour the world. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. But what one of the questions I had for you is, what was the? Can you share just? I know you've got many, many stories, but can you just share a crazy story from back in those days that you might not have shared yet? Oh, I mean, there's, you know. Back then, I don't know what it is like in Australia, but in America, you know, you have to be very careful about what you say and you can't say anything sexual or it's degrading. And and at the cat house, I mean, there were people I mean, there were people having sex in the bathrooms. There were people doing drugs. It was it was and it was like, you know, because I never allowed cameras in the club, people could do anything they want. And. Uh, um. Some of the really good ones I'll save. I'll save for the show. <laughs> I mean, to to say you know about crazy stories. You know, for five years I was doing this every week, and it all kind of blended together after a while. And, and in my show, I'm going to tell an interesting story about John Five that I didn't even realize happened at the cat house mm. until he told me later. So there's a lot of crazy stories about that time. And I think in Australia, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to really describe what it was like in the Hollywood scene at those days and what yeah. it was really like being, you know, in my early 20s on the Sunset Strip. I've never lived, you know, except now I live in North Carolina, but I never lived more than like six miles from the Sunset Strip since I was a little kid till I was an adult. Mm. So it was it was a place that I went to all the time. And it, and when I had the cat house, it was just a magical time when it was like it became blase when they said, oh, Billy Gibbons just walked in. Oh, Gene Simmons just walked in. Oh, Malcolm Forbes, the famous millionaire that started Forbes. I mean, he walked in and it just became ridiculous how many people were just walking in and me just being young. I'm like, oh, all right. Oh, that's cool. You know, I didn't care. It was it was pretty incredible. How did you avoid Icarus syndrome, though? Because you were at the center of one of the most decadent rock and roll scenes in history. How did I avoid what? Icarus syndrome, flying too close to the sun and becoming a victim yourself. I did. I mean, I had a big crash. I became a raging drug addict. Um, I was drinking, doing coke, doing meth, and finally had a major collapse. I had several, you know, really really tough times. And I, I talk about that a little bit in the show. And what happened is the night that Nikki six Oh died, died. And I'm sorry for the dinging on my mail. Um, no the day that Nikki six OD'd it, he was at the cat house. And then the next night he had a party at his house and there was like Nikki and Robin Crosby and a bunch of guys from some eighties bands. And Nikki had said that he was going to get sober. And I'm like, Hmm, you know, I've tried to commit suicide. I'm depressed. I'm, I'm doing really bad things. And I decided to give it a shot. And in a sense, Nikki and I got sober when we were friends, but we're not friends anymore at all. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, we went and it became a time that I was the sober guy in L.A. So if if Motley Crue's going to hang, get on their private jet and fly to, you know, Vancouver to record an album. Hey, Ricky, do you want to go? Because they knew I wasn't going to be the one, you know, trying to get everybody to do coke or get everybody to drink. So so I was hanging out with those guys because uh, I would have died. I mean, it was it was pretty bad. Mm. Nikki's one of the very few people that I wouldn't interview, even if I was given a chance and paid to do it, to be quite honest with you. Not that the chance would come up. But anyway, it remains to be it's beside the point. He and Lars Ulrich, I've got to say. 
is your is your take on Nicky that he's just got an ego and he just keeps on wanting to feed that ego? I don't know. I mean, we were we were very close a long time ago. I mean, he invited me to his wedding in Hawaii and we'd hang out, but he did some pretty messed up stuff. And I think he's selfish. I don't know what's going on with the band. I haven't seen the band play in so long because I just I just don't have a desire to. And it seems like right now that a lot of the stuff that he's done might be coming back to hit him because, you know, all Nicky Six has to do is say, we're recording a new album and the comments just rip him to shreds, yeah. you know, and all the stuff about them playing to tape, which I, I can't say whether it's true or not, but everybody else knows. Oh, it's definitely and, true. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> is. And it's been true for a while. Mm. And, um, you know, you can't do that. I mean, there's nothing I hate more than going to see a band and they're not, and they're playing to a tape. It drives me up the wall. I'm like, dude, it'd be better. And first of all, about all the accusations of Vince on tape, if that was the case, they could have got a better tape, you know, because he's not yeah. sounding so good. And, you know, talking about them coming out of the new, they, sh they should have quit when they signed the deal saying they weren't going to play anymore, which was a mm. stupid concept of signing a contract to say, we're not going to play and then blowing up the contract that they wrote. That was just like, I think people started to feel like, eh, and then the stadium tour, which says they're done and then getting rid of Mick and everything else. And I think a lot of people are just like, just stop, you know, you guys are 60 and, and you're doing these stupid things. And it's just, it's just stupid. Yeah. It, it's a, but it's a reflection on the fans too. Don't you think Ricky, like the fact that people keep turning out and buying their fucking hundred or they're more than a hundred bucks of tickets or whatever they might be. And uh, clamoring for these things in, in the monks that's being shredded through blabbermouth comments or what have you. There's a lot of bands that fall into that category at this point where they've long become a vaudeville act. And Motley Crue, to be honest with you, Motley Crue aren't even the worst of the bunch. There's there's a couple of others that are far worse, but who don't oh, even have oh. original members. Oh. Uh, like Foreigner, for example, who don't have an original right. member or might even have one original right. member in the band. The point is it just seems like if you've got the rights, the original rights of the band, Cradle of Filth, who I love, the original band, they're another one. Um, they got one one original member. They just become a pantomime of themselves. Um, but it's, but it's again, the singer, it's, right? It's the singer. Danny Filth is in there, but I've spoken and to Danny a Danny Filth of is a star. I mean, so maybe if it's just one member, but I mean, I think he's. A star. I've never seen the band, but I always liked them. They for some reason they always made me smile. Um, I've never seen. I've never seen them live, but it, it's a weird thing. Like you know. My best friend, Tammy, he's still playing in Faster Pussycat, and he's the only original member. But yeah. that was a band that it was him. He wrote all the songs. And it's weird. It's weird when you see people playing under different names or, or playing with only like one bass player. And it's like a singer. OK, I don't know. It It does bug me after a while. But like a lot of people ask me what I feel about Pantera mm -hmm. and why didn't they do it before? And a lot of people really don't like it. But I always said if, if Zach was going to do it, that'd be great. And Zach is doing it. And the way I look at the Pantera thing is there's not a kid. I mean, an 18, 19 year old kid that doesn't walk into their shows and think of Diamond Vinny. Mm. And I always said that the, the young kids, the problem with the young kids today is they never got to see Pantera live. Pantera back in the day were phenomenal. They were the epitome of just a great metal band. And now they get to see him. And I know it's kind of weird and I don't know how I feel about the whole thing, but I think if they were playing by me, I'd go see him because 
Zach is great. And uh, but it is it is a shame. I mean, that was one that I was really torn on, torn about whether it was right for them to play without without um, without Vinny and Dime. Yeah, I think they're doing it for the right reasons. The other thing is I think this is a bit of a redemption story for Phil and the public eye. I've always loved Phil, but he's had his dark night of the soul and he's been shit on by a lot of people unnecessarily. I've got to say people who either don't know him or don't understand what his personal demons are about. And right. this is this is an opportunity for him to get up in front of people and reclaim that space, I believe. And I think he's doing such a great job. Same with Charlie, Zach, and Rex is a jerk, to be honest with you, but Rex will include Rex in it too. <laughs> But that meant they they went out. I mean, if you would have said, okay, and nobody's gonna ever sound like Dime, but if you were gonna pick one guitarist to play, why don't you pick somebody that's incredible that happened to be like best friends with Dime that respects him so much? So that's why it didn't feel as bad to me. I wish it would have happened a, a while ago when Ben was still around, but it doesn't feel. And Charlie Benante, it's like, look, Charlie isn't doing it because he needs the money. Zach isn't doing it for because he needs the money. So they're doing it to help keep Pantera's name alive. I mean, it, I'm torn about it, but I would go see him. Same. Yeah, it's one of the few like that that I would go to see. And as I say, I believe they're doing it for all of the right reasons. Everybody knows that Phil is heartbroken over the death of Dime and, of course, now Vinny. Everybody knows that. He's been very upfront about that. It's def- None of them need the money. They're doing this for the fans. And, and I think that's, I think that's so. very genuine. Yeah. Hey, talk, talking about Headbangers Ball again, um, a bit like that metal show, has MTV or whoever owns MTV these days, has there ever been conversations about bringing it back? Have you ever? You haven't? No. No, and I have gone as far to write them and tell them, like, hey, if you guys want to do because I never got to do a final episode. And mm. there were so many people that were really wrapped up into Headbangers Ball that would write all the time, and now I meet you know, people at my show that said, you know, I meet old people at my show that say, I grew up watching, you know, I'm like, that means we feel really old. But I meet so many people that Headbangers Ball was such an important part for them on their Saturday nights, especially if you lived in a small town in the Midwest of America, you didn't get heavy metal bands. So it was so important to them. And I did it for five years. And then all of a sudden it just ended. I didn't get to do a final episode. And for decades, I've been saying, look, bring me back. I'll pay for my own flight. I'll pay the, I'll pay, you know, if, if you have to pay me, I'll give all the money to charity. I just want to do a final episode of Headbangers Ball and there has been nothing. So finally, I'm just like, you know, I mean, nobody's watching MTV anyway, but I, Hmm. I think that it, I think it's true that you could watch any video you want. You just have to talk to your phone and say, play some Lamb of God or whatever. And it's on. But the stuff that I did, the interaction, the goofy, the playing, the having fun is, I think, what made why Headbangers Ball could work today, because it was much more than just the music. And it was hanging out with the bands and doing crazy stuff and seeing what some of these people really like. So I think that would work today. But MTV has said absolutely nothing. And I I wish they would, because I'd love to do the show again. Agreed. And I think you hit the nail on the head with that comment there. And I wouldn't say it unless I felt it was the case. That show worked because you were at the center of it. And you handled yourself really well when a lot of these musicians were being assholes to you, to be frank. Well, the biggest one that people comment on all the time is Dave Mustaine. Yeah. I talk about that in my show a lot because Dave Mustaine always gave me a hard time. But the truth is, 
people remember that show 30 years later. Nobody goes up and asks me like, oh, what about that great interview you did with James or Rob Halford? Is that, they don't talk about that. Those were great interviews with legends, but they always mention that Dave Mustaine thing. So if I did a show with Dave Mustaine being mean to me and me talking and taking it all in, but you remembered it, I mean, that's kind of okay. And Dave has said a million times, he said, I only did that because I wanted you to succeed. And I figured I'm going to give you a hard time. And if you can get through this, you'll succeed. I mean, people always remember Dave Mustaine being, you know, oh, he hated you, Ricky. Well, people did notice that he also played the cat house for free during that time. So, so I had, I skydived with Dave. I, me and Dave were, were cool and which is good because I really love Megadeth. But uh, people remember that, in my opinion, if you remember, you know, Glenn Danzig trying to throw me in the fire or Dave Mustaine making fun of me, I don't care. You remember what I did 30 years later. And and in my book, that's okay. Hmm. So it's not exactly scripted, but you went along with a bit of a, uh, there was sort of like a role play going on. And and look, about Dave Mustaine, I understand you went to his, his wedding too. So you were clearly mates, but then you guys didn't talk to each other for a long time. But are you mates again now? Um, I interviewed him probably about two and a half years ago and I went to go see him and his guitarist said, Oh, Dave, Oh, Dave just left. He really wanted to see you. I'm like, okay. But if, if we see each other, I mean, I love their new album. So I, I want to see him whenever I see him play. And, but I know we're cool. I mean, I'd, I'd love to sit down and talk with Dave. Sweet, yeah. I'll put you on the spot a bit, talking about jerks. As I say, was there anybody that you really felt was mean-spirited and unnecessarily so? I think Yngwie Malmsteen's a dick. Um, I mean, just by the way, not how he acted on Headbangers, Bob, but he was just just a jerk. Um, I was a little upset, and I know he doesn't remember this, and maybe he's not like this, but I remember, and I I have a parrot in the background, so I'm sorry if you keep on hearing this. No, I was going to hear it. It's lovely. Yeah, I've, I've had one oh. before, so yeah. <laughs> um, I I can't say. I mean, me and CC Deville really didn't like each other for a while, and at one time we had to do a show together in England, and I was, and he knew I didn't like him, and I knew I didn't like him, but now I don't I don't care. People that were jerks, um, you know, even people think that Slayer was, I mean, Tom Araya was ruthless with me, but, you know, I'd go to Carrie King's for barbecue and I'd go see bands with Carrie. So I can't say anybody that, that, that really did something mean spirited or really, you know, gave me a hard time because they didn't like me. I'm sure there were bands that that didn't like me and that's okay. You know, I think because I wasn't, you know, especially some of the heavier bands because we had death on and we had cannibal corpse on. Yeah. And I'm sure they didn't like me because they thought like, Oh, Ricky Rackman's playing all these poppy videos, which were not my choice. I never picked a video on that show ever. Oh. And you know, there was, I'm sure there were some people, but I didn't really feel it. If, if somebody didn't like me, they didn't have to get interviewed with me. And if there was somebody that I didn't like, I probably wouldn't have interviewed them either. So I don't, I, I can't think of, I can't think of something at the club. I will think about that because there were a few people that got like ridiculous rock star attitudes, which we never permitted at the cat house. Cause we didn't even have like a dressing room. I mean, Motorhead played there so many times and let me, was just like, Oh, all I need is some Jack and a place to sit down. And it was like, he wouldn't even charge me to play my club. Oh. So there were some people, I, I try to remember the people that were really good to me and phase out the people that are bad. 
Yeah, I'm hearing you. Yeah. Did you form any life lifelong friendships because of Headbangers Ball? So you interviewed them and you just found that um, things kicked off? I already knew all the guys in Guns N' Roses, obviously. And I mean, I talked to Duff and Slash yesterday. As far as bands that were on Headbangers Ball that I met, um, I know there are. Um, because I'm like thinking like, oh, Danzig, no, Danzig was at the cat house. And there were some, you know, believe it or not, which you're not going to expect me to say, um, I was never like a big fan of the band Jackal. Do you remember that band Jackal? Of course, yeah. Chainsaw Chainsaw, yeah. Yeah, which is what everybody remembers. And I never was really friends with them because I thought they were kind of corny. And then they were playing when I moved out here and I saw them and I talked to Jesse. I saw him again and I took it for what it was. And I I get along great with Jesse. I think Jesse is a really, really good guy. And I'm thinking of bands that I'm friends with now that are after Headbangers Ball. Like I've got friends that are in bands after Headbangers Ball. And I'm sure there are people that I met purely because of Headbangers Ball. But I knew so many people before it, and I just can't think of bands that I met from that show. But I know there are some. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. And who would you say was the most underrated musician that you've spoken to all rounder? I'm talking about great person, excellent musician, great music too, great songwriting, but just never quite hit it. I don't like the word underrated. I always, because a lot of people, who's the most underrated band? I mean, there's a lot of bands that I like. I wouldn't say they're underrated. I would say they just didn't get the attention they deserve. Uh, you know, now John Five is in 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 Guns N' Roses. I mean, in Motley Crue, whatever he's in. But people don't know how phenomenal that kid is as a guitarist. He's really incredible. But as far as people that were, didn't get the, I mean, there's a lot of bands that I liked that never got much attention that I think should have. Oh, I wish I was more able to come up with all this stuff. Um, bands that were underrated. You've met thousands though, so it's understandable. That yeah, it I mean, there's one more. band, it's, it's not really a metal band, but a band that I really thought could have been like a huge band. And that was the London Choir Boys. And they never did anything Ginger, in America. Ginger Wild huh? Ginger Wild Ginger oh, from the, and, yeah, Ginger was in the band, yeah. Choir Boys, I liked so much because they had that Rod Stewart faces look, and they never did anything um, in America. So there's a few bands, I can't think of them offhand, that I would go see. I mean, I think more bands after Headbangers Ball, like, you know, Alexi from Children of Bodom. You know, a lot oh, of yeah. my kids don't know who he is. But don't know that this kid is just like was amazing guitarist. And he just started that band Bodum After Midnight and just done a couple things. And I thought that was great stuff, too. But unfortunately, mm. we lost him before I think people realized how talented that guy was. Mm. So that's what I think as far as after uh, Headbangers Ball. Mm. Fair enough. But yeah. Look, I know you've got an interview coming up in five minutes, so I'll uh, make this my final question for you, even though I could ask you literally hundreds more. <laughs> If you could do it all over again, would you change anything? So that is something that I talk about in my show because I've done a lot of mistakes. I've gotten in trouble. I've been in jail several times. But one of the things that I say in my show, One Foot in the Gutter, is I said, if those bad things didn't happen, it wouldn't lead me to these good things. I think if I say what I would have, what I would have changed, I would have 
taking pictures with bands. I never did that. And I think I would have taken a took a little bit of time and looked at where I was and really appreciated it. I've always been a hustler, so I'm always stressing to find the next gig. And sometimes you don't realize, like, you realize that you're sitting here with ACDC right now, that you're talking to, you know, Brian Jansen, Brian Johnson and Angus Young. I interviewed Brian Johnson and Angus Young and we're talking and he said, well, next time I see you, you know, now that we're friends and I never saw him again, but I just, for him to say, now that we're friends, I was like, oh my God, so a friend. <laughs> to, to hang out with the biggest rock stars in the world, you know, the Iron Maidens and, and stuff like that was just, was just in, incredible. And I don't think I appreciated how great and what a great position I was in back then which is a shame that I would change. I think I would take a moment and say like, wow, this is really cool. Take it all in. Excellent. I'll be at the show, mate. Um, I can't Which wait one? to hear all of these stories. Brisbane. Oh, Brisbane is a, uh, Brisbane is going to be the show that we actually spend. A, are you in Brisbane? Gold coast. So just South of it. Yep. So that's a town that my sister's going to fly in and we're going to spend about three or four days in Brisbane, go to the Qualibur Sanctuary. And I don't know, that might sound like the most touristy thing in the world in Australia, but we're going to do that. Oh, you've got and, to do it though. Yeah. Come down, come oh, down yeah, to the beaches. You, you'll only be, you, it's not far down the road. When I say it's like 50, 60 kilometers down the road to go to the beaches Great. of Surfers Paradise. John will, you know, John Howarth and the um, Silverback guys will know, will hook you up and know all about it, mate. Um, yeah. I've never, know. I've never, been, I've never been to Australia. However, I did live in New Zealand for a year and a half, which is not Australia oh, by a long slot, but I did live there for like a year and a half when I was 16. All oh, right. So, Parents were globetrotters, were they? Yeah. Um, I wasn't a good kid. So my dad was out in New Zealand and he lived there. And then my sister lived there. My sister still lives in New Zealand. Oh, there you go. Oh, maybe she'll come over and see you, will she? Yes, she's going to come over to the Brisbane show. So I'm yeah. really excited. I got I to gotta figure out what words in America and English mean something totally different in Australia. <laughs> so there's something that I don't say upstage and everybody's like, what the hell is he talking there's about? There's one that I can tell you about. You know when you guys in the US say we're rooting for the team? Yes. Rooting means fucking. So just be aware of that. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> okay. good. I don't know if I ever say the word rooting, but with my luck, I probably would that day. And like, you know. Like yeah. I was rooting for all the bands in Los Angeles. You hear that a lot, and it's a few of the Aussies and stuff. We look at each other, going, "Yeah, we maybe you weren't, but that's okay. <laughs> oh, I hope you weren't, but that's okay. <laughs> all good, mate. All right, mate. I'll let you get to the next one. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed this one. Thank Great you. Great talking to you, and I look forward to meeting you in Brisbane. Do I say Thanks, it right? You said Brisbane, say Brisbane close Brisbane? enough. Yeah, Brisbane close enough. Okay. Yeah, no worries. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, brother. See you again. Cheers. A conversation with the great Ricky Rackman just then. What a joy to finally talk to the fella. As I said in the introduction, looking forward to attending his show. Now, if you enjoyed that chat, there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com. And if you like listening, maybe you like reading too. Yes, I've written a book, Scars and Guitars, Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Heavy Metal and Beyond. Click on the link in the banner and you will be taken to a marketplace of your choice where you can download a sample and you know the rest. Something else on the website too, I'm helping promote the 70,000 Tons of Metal cruise event that is happening through late January, early February, leaving from the port of Miami. In 2024, I will be on it. 
hopefully some of you who listen to the show will be as well because I'd love to have a beer with you. It's that opportunity that I finally get because so many of you come from the United States and abroad who listen. Okay, I've got some more information to share about the book in the moment, but before we get to that, I need to bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Until next time, it's a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silenos from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction. George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, 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 just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was... He was very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.